Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about helping people into authentic and significant relationship with King Jesus. <laughs> How are you guys this morning? Good. I hope you guys had an awesome weekend. For those of you guys who are new, I just want to say welcome to Saltbox. And I'm so glad that you decided to be with us today. Make sure you come back for the real pastor next week. Uh, I am the substitute teacher. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm so happy uh, that I get to share the word with you. Can we, can we just take a moment? Can we just be thankful for the fact that we get to spend a few hours together this morning? Man, I, I pray that we as a church, that we don't take this for granted. This is special. That we get to gather together, and we get to worship together, and we get to hear the word of the Lord together. That we get to be in community with like-minded believers who love the same God who are chasing the same Jesus. And I just pray that we never lose a thankfulness and a gratitude and even a sense of wonder for that special privilege that we have as Americans. Isn't that awesome? So those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Daniel Walters, and I'm the Associate Pastor of Operations and Discipleship. And that is a fancy mouthful that means that I want to talk to you today about the foundations of a vibrant and faithful relationship with God. That is my job, and it's truthfully, it's a job that I share with all pastors. I just believe that discipleship equals relationship. That if we want to grow as believers, as followers of Jesus, what we're really saying is we want to grow in our relationship with King Jesus. I truly believe that you are loved by God, that you were made in His image, and that God wants to be in a relationship with you, believe it or not, this Jesus journey that we are all on is about relationship, and it's a relationship that we all crave. All relationships share a few things in common, and a relationship with God, I believe, is no different. And I'm not trying to put this into human terms, but we as humans have programming when it comes to relationships. And I don't believe that that programming is just so that we can have relationships with people, but I think those connectors also work in our relationship with God. God created humankind for a relationship with Him. So the things that bond us in the ways that we relate to each other aren't just designed for earthly relationships. Even romantic relationships between a man and a woman aren't just so that we can propagate the species, but that we can have a natural and real relationship with God. The Bible tells us that the romantic relationship of marriage is a picture or an example of God's love for us and our response to it. We're going to look at two key passages of Scripture today, so I want you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, somewhere around verse 21, Ephesians 5, 21. And then I want you to put one finger or that little tiny ribbon on James chapter 1. So Ephesians 5 and James 1. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. And I think that this passage of Scripture gives us a profound focus on this correlation between a relationship between our Heavenly Father through Christ and a relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, trigger warning. I recognize that this passage of Scripture has been abused. And I recognize that there are people in this room right now hearing my voice 
who have possibly been spiritually abused by this passage of Scripture. Women of the faith, our Christian sisters, at some point could have experienced someone using this passage of Scripture to bash you over the head or to subjugate you in some way. And so while we're not necessarily going to dive into that, if you want to dive into that, I'd love to talk to you about it. We can have a great conversation. There's two things that I want to pull from in this passage of Scripture. I want to look first at verse 21. Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So before we get into talking about a relationship between a husband and a wife, and before we get into what a woman's role in that relationship is and what a, role, a man's role in that relationship is, this passage of Scripture sets it up and how this should be interpreted. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the mindset that we are supposed to take into this passage of Scripture about marriage and about the marriage relationship. And it is in and of itself, right there, giving you a picture of this cycle, of this circle. Two people who are willing to submit and surrender and lay down their lives for each other. That word submit's not a fun word. And it's not a 2023 word we like to use. And if you notice, it doesn't just ask one member of the relationship to submit. This is, a, this is something that we're supposed to do together out of a reverence for Christ. Understanding that Jesus himself gave up his life for us. Jesus laid down his life. He went first. And so he sets the examples for us as Christians to follow. Now, I don't believe that we can hold people who don't know Jesus to this standard. But for me... As a believer in Christ, I have a certain responsibility. And just because the wife kind of goes first in this passage of Scripture doesn't mean I have the right to stop reading at the end of that period. I have a big responsibility here also to lay down my life and to sacrificially love my wife. Let's look at verse 32. Verse 32 says this. And if you read in the New Living Translation, it uses uh, this verbiage. It says, this is a great mystery. But this is an illustration of the way that the Christ, uh, the way that Christ and the church are one. So this picture of sacrificial love, a marriage working because two people are willing to surrender and lay down their life and their will and their agenda and their way for each other. All right, let's pause. We're going to come back to that. Okay, I promise. So there seems to be a strong correlation between our intimate human relationships and our intimate spiritual relationship with Jesus. So let's take a couple minutes and let's think about relationships. What are some of the key ingredients of a great romantic relationship? We could sit here and we could probably, all of us would probably agree that first and foremost, we probably heard this most of our lives, that communication is an important ingredient in a romantic relationship, Right? We need to be able to fully express our feelings and our emotions. We need to be able to talk to each other. We need to make decisions and plans together. So communication is key. So if you don't know what someone's thinking or feeling, we can become very disconnected from them, right? So it's even part of our, our issues with intimacy are issues of communication. I think it's also important to be able to tell someone what you're feeling, whether they, you intend for them to fix it or not, 
but for us to be able to just communicate what's going on in my heart, even if they already know the answer. That sounds a lot like prayer, doesn't it? Just like in our romantic relationships, communication is important, and the same is true in our relationship with God. Even though he already knows how we think and feel, he still wants us to tell him because he values relationship. I remember when my wife and I were in the beginnings of our relationship, uh, <laughs> uh, we, were, we, got, we got married, and we were excited about getting married. Uh, and uh, when, when I found my wife, I found the one that my heart longed for. And so we were ready to get married once we were engaged. And I think we were, our engagement lasted four months. It was fast. And we were ready. And, uh, but I think that we probably argued more in that first four months than we did the entire first year of our marriage. I mean, we had some good ones. We had like squalling tires and rings getting thrown at people. I'm not going to say who did who and who did what, uh, but, but it was fiery, okay? There was a lot of passion. Uh, and, uh, but part of the reason why we struggled in our communication is that my wife had a brilliant lexicon of feelings words. She could very adequately express how she felt in any given situation. She was just had a beautiful palette to paint from. <laughs> I had two. Talk a lot about feelings and emotions on the farm I grew up on. I had two feelings words, happy and angry. That was it. So when she was trying to tell me that she was disappointed, I heard angry. So because she was angry, that would make me angry. And then she would get angry that I was angry at her being disappointed. And I didn't know how to express it. When I felt valued, valued means happy. <laughs> when I felt loved, happy. Grief, angry. Pretty much a caveman, right? Me, angry. <laughs> That's what I got. But also, I mean, the, the great thing about us being in a relationship is that I began to learn from her, and I began to take on some of her traits as we were in relationship with each other, and I learned more feelings words. I'm still working on it. <laughs> I have, I'm up to at least seven, I think. A solid seven feelings words. I'm proud of that. All right. So communication is a key ingredient of relationship, um, and it looks a lot like prayer. Um, affection. Every human being on planet Earth needs affection. Uh, affection is a part of every personal relationship of our lives. But if we think about it in a romantic context, uh, it's a way of, it, of physically expressing our love for each other. Now, I understand that. I've read the five love languages books, and I know not everybody likes to be touched. But, but affection just, it isn't just hugging and kissing. It's an expression. It's a physical expression of Love and of intimacy. Man, I, I don't know that I would really want to be in a relationship with someone uh, romantically who did not ever want to touch me and was gro grossed out and repelled at the sight of me. That wouldn't be a lot of fun, you know what I mean? In the same way, like that affection is, is, is really important. And it's a created bond, I believe, that holds our relationships together, Right? Even our friendships with each other are affected by affection. 
Guys, a little wrap around the arm, a little side hug, fist bump, a little smack, touchdown, good job. That's affection. Affection is love expressed. Love expressed. Doesn't that sound like worship? Doesn't that sound like what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that worship is love expressed? That's a, an act of affection. You see, there's that correlation between our romantic relationship and our relationship with God. The one I want to zero in today is, on today is, is faith. Faith is what makes you a believer in a relationship. Faith makes you a believer in a relationship. And we all know that faith and faithfulness is really, really important, right? And we think about that in the terms of romantic relationships. What if you're in a relationship with someone who didn't trust you? And everything that you did was, was viewed suspiciously through this lens of you might act up. That you're being watched all the time. And maybe you deserve that type of gaze because of your uh, lack of trustworthiness. However... That's not, that, that's not the keys of a great and beautiful relationship, right? So faith is really, really important because uh, faith is that thing that helps you move past the things that you see and the evidences of what you see. So what you expect to happen doesn't happen. Faith is what makes you believe the best about someone instead of becoming suspicious, and suspicion can poison any relationship. So faith is important. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, chapter 1, that faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Now, that is a very beautiful and poetic passage of Scripture, but maybe it's uh, hard to understand. Uh, but it's actually not very hard to demonstrate. So right now, looking at this chair... I believe that this chair will support my weight. <laughs> Wouldn't it be hilarious, though, if it didn't? Church illustration's gone bad. It would be on YouTube, wouldn't it? <laughs> all right, I believe that this, this chair will support my weight, all right? That's intellectual. This is trust. I trust this chair, oh, Lord Jesus. I trust this chair by trusting it with my weight. I have practiced sitting, and now I have placed trust in, in good old chair. Chair didn't let me down. All right? So now my belief and the action of trusting has taken place. I now have faith that this chair will support my weight. Now I walk up to it, and I'll sit down in it, and I might even stand on it later if I was Pentecostal. Uh, but I'm not going to right now. That to me is a picture of faith, and it's kind of an easy illustration to understand. I really believe that when you read the Bible, what the Bible says is that for us to have faith, it goes from an intellectual belief. There has to be this leap, this action that takes place where we decide to trust the thing that we believe in, and that trust produces faith. Belief, trust, faith, right? And some of you might say, Pastor Daniel, doesn't the Bible say that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? And I would say, yes, absolutely, that is true. And 
trust produces faith. Faith is built on trust. Trust precedes faith. And I'm using trust uh, interchangeably with an action verb, like practicing. Trust is something that you do. Our faith in God is built on a choice to trust Him before we've seen all the evidence. All right? So it's not just in learning the Word and hearing great sermons preached by Pastor Michael, because you will hear great sermons that will encourage and grow your faith. But that's not going to benefit you. That's not going to work for you until you start trusting the Word of God by living it out. Flip in your Bible to James chapter 1, verse 22. Here's my evidence to back that up. James chapter 1, verse 22. It says, Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and then, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So the Bible tells us that we're not supposed to be just hearers of the word but doers of the word. So I believe that that action step, that the leap part of faith, is trust. We have to choose to trust God. Here's why I believe that. There are universities full of professors with masters of divinity degrees, and there are doctors of the word who aren't practicing Christians. They live faithless lives because they have knowledge that hasn't been tested by trust. They have an intellectual interest in God's Word, but no relationship with Him. Sounds like the Pharisees, right? This understanding of how all of it works and all the pieces are put. You understand the historical context, but you have no faith, or your faith is small because you've never trusted God in His Word. Sadly enough, for many of us, our faith journey begins and ends right here. For some of us, faith built on trust seems like an impossible task because it's never been modeled for us. Many of us right here in this room right now have been hurt deeply by people that we were supposed to be able to trust. People in our lives who are supposed to protect us, to guide us, to love us, to support us, or otherwise provide, um, provide for us. Sometimes those people are the ones who've hurt us the most. And when it comes to faith, we feel stuck. Because unless you have a frame of reference for a relationship with God and trust, then you're going to have a hard time. I believe that that's like integral to the beginning of your discipleship journey is making a choice to trust God. If not, what what difference does the word matter? You can learn all the word that you want, but until you've decided that you can trust him, then you're just growing in knowledge about God but never learning who he is. I know about LeBron James. I don't know him. Personally, 
I don't have a relationship with them, and that's the difference. So how can we begin to have trust or begin to trust God? First, we have to believe and to become convinced that he is trustworthy. You remember that passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5? The picture painted for us is one in which a husband and wife mutually choose to lay down their own will and desires in order to serve their spouse. It is a race to outserve, outgive, outsubmit, and outlove each other, to outdie to the flesh, to outlay down one's life. Being in this type of relationship makes it easy to trust because you know that someone else has your best interest at heart. You don't have time to think about yourself because someone else is already thinking about you. This type of relationship is a breeding ground. For the kind of trust that produces faith. And it's the same in our relationship with Jesus. He has earned the right to be trusted in our lives. He went first. Jesus went first. He laid down his life. He submitted his will to the Father for your sake. He leads the way in sacrificial forgiveness. He gave up his crown and came to earth as a humble servant. He took on our wounds, he bore our punishment and our shame, and he knows every square inch of us, and he loves us still. Jesus is worthy. Amen. Jesus is worthy. So why is it hard to trust? Trust is something that we constantly have to remind ourselves to do. Even if we've been on this faith journey for a long time, even if you're a pastor, even if you're on church staff, even if you're a deacon, even if you've been following after Christ for 30, 40, 60 years, every day you still have to get up and choose to trust God. You'll have opportunities to choose to trust God or not. Right now you're having an opportunity to trust God or not. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. That tells me that there are going to be times where God's will and God's way runs contrary to how I think it should work and what I know to be true. Psalm 56, 3 says, but when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. That means that tells me that there's going to be times where I'm going to be afraid and I'm not going to know the ending of the story before I get to the end of the story and my heart is going to be filled with anxiety and fear and I'm going to have to choose to trust in God. Psalm 13, 5 says, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. So be times I'm going to have to remind myself that it is the love of Christ who has changed my life and he has rescued me and he wouldn't have rescued me for no reason. I can trust him. Psalm 33, 4 says, For the word of the Lord holds true and we can trust everything that he does. This is why this matters, okay? There will be a time where you won't be able to see the way forward. And there will be a time when your life doesn't go the way that you envisioned it. You may find that everyone else in the whole world seems to be against you, and your faith will be tested. You will face troubles. 
You will face trials. You will face loss. You will be disappointed by those that you thought would never betray you. You may even feel disappointed or let down by God. And you're going to have to make a choice. In 2018, my wife and I heard very clearly from the Lord that we were supposed to do something kind of crazy. God put it on our heart to move from Wilmington, North Carolina to northern Uganda, Gulu Town in Africa, East Africa, um, with a desire to adopt a little girl who was dying from malnutrition and neglect. We knew that that's exactly what God told us to do, and we were both in agreement. God told her. God told me. We knew exactly. I mean, we, it was just like we knew. We were certain of it. And so we packed it all up. We sold everything that we owned and gave other stuff away, sold our house, and packed up our three kids who were pretty small at the time, twin four-year-olds. And how old was Deacon? Seven. What were we thinking? (laughs) It's a crazy idea. And we moved to Uganda. Uganda is very different than southeastern United States. Um, And uh, so we decided that that that's exactly what God was doing, and so we stepped out in faith. So we, we moved, we arrived, we began a life. And we had this process by which we were following. We had an adoption agency that we were working with. And we were just trusting. We knew it was going to be crazy. We knew it was going to be a journey. We were just trusting that this is going to work out. Somehow or another, this is going to work out. And you know what? A couple months into it, it stopped working out. The little girl that we were trying to adopt, she was born in prison. Her mother had committed murder, and it killed a small child, which was uh, her, her brother's infant. Hit him in the head with a stone and killed him. She went to prison, and in prison, she didn't know at the time she was pregnant, and that's where she had a baby. The prison officials, after a couple of years, took her from her mother and took her back to her village of origin and placed her with family members. The same family of the child that had been murdered. She lived with her grandmother, who was the village witch doctor. And she was being starved intentionally. She was extremely malnourished, and her organs were starting to fail. We found out about her because uh, the witch doctor actually spoke to, um, um, we we, we were actually in relationship with this village for many, many years, and it was a part of our church's relationship at the time, and and, uh, she told us that I'm waiting for this child to die so I don't have to take care of her anymore. And man, that just ignited something in us, and God was doing something in us, and we knew that he was calling us. Not just to try to adopt this child, bring her to the United States, but our job was to go to Uganda. A few months in, we got the the news that the birth mother in prison had removed her permission for us to adopt a little girl. She had already given it. That's why we moved. 
But she had many opportunities, like five or six different opportunities to change her mind. And on the second time, she removed her consent for adoption. That doesn't mean that she's like a bad guy or anything like this in this story. But it was devastating to us. And we had questions. Like, God, we know you told us to do this. We know that we, you, you told us to come over here, and it was in our heart to, to be a father and to be a mother to this little girl. Like, what gives? And let me tell you, packing up and selling everything and moving Uganda, moving to Uganda did not require as much faith as being there in that moment and continuing to choose to trust God when the evidence that we saw didn't line up with the word that God had spoken to us. And worse than that, on the subject of what we were supposed to do, the Lord was silent. When we prayed, God just said, my love is never wasted. When we prayed, he said, you can trust me. He didn't tell us what to do next. And we suffered. I suffered. I suffered because I'm supposed to be like a pastor and leader of my home. I'm supposed to be protecting my family and providing for my family. And I've led us all the way across the, the world because I thought I heard from the Lord. And I must have been wrong. Was I wrong? Could I have been wrong? I was heartbroken. This little girl was living in our home. Now, we knew that we were going to have to foster her. She was going to live with us for a couple of years while we foster her in Uganda. That's part of their process. Then we knew that we were probably going to be there for another couple of years while all the adoption stuff took place. But here we are a couple months in, and the rug feels like it's been pulled out from under us. And that was it. There was nothing else we can do. Uganda is actually a closed country to international adoption. So once she removed her consent, it was done. Stamped. Now, nobody else wanted her. No one showed up at the door to take her away from us. But here I was, and this little girl who I love dearly, who called me daddy. God, where are you? Why aren't you telling me what to do next? The reason why God wasn't telling me what to do next was because there was nothing for me to do next. Because he was working. He was moving. He was continuing to write the story that he wanted to write. It might not have been the same story that I had in my mind, but God was doing what he wanted to do all along. Through our attempted adoption, we found out who the little girl's birth father was. And having not even really known that he had a daughter and having already gotten remarried and had several other kids, uh, he was all too keen to have us adopt this little girl. Yes, absolutely. You can adopt her. I don't know what I will do if my wife finds out. Like, <laughs> this could be bad for me. Please adopt this little girl. However, over the course of those months, the Holy Spirit, not Daniel Walters, the Holy Spirit was working in his heart. Why did these people move all the way from across the world to take care of this little girl? 
who, who, what has motivated them to do this? And God began to reshape and remold and to touch him. And so he started meeting with the local pastor in his village, and his, his pastor's name was Jacob. Jacob was awesome. I can't tell the story without telling you that Jacob was awesome. Uh, he had one eye, and he was a man of God who had survived civil war and everything else, and I love Jacob. And Jacob began to mentor this young man, and God did something miraculous in his heart, and he decided that he wanted to resurrender his life to Christ, resubmit his life to the Lord, and pursue a relationship with God. And through that course of action, he began to grow in his relationship with God and seeking and praying. And God began to transform him. Here I was in a foreign land, frustrated because I couldn't see what God was doing. And I, I thought there was something I needed to do to fix what was happening. God was fixing it. God was working. And so well, I had a meeting with him and I said, man, I, I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't adopt your daughter anymore. I can't send her to her mother. Uh, do, you, do we put her in a boarding school? Like, what, what can we do? We, we don't have the resources to live in Uganda indefinitely and just be your family in Uganda. What, what can we do? And he says, if you cannot adopt her, can I be the girl's father? I fell back in my chair and was fighting stinging tears. Because I began to see what God had been up to all along. God called me to love that little girl and to prepare a way for this man to be reunited with his daughter. Because we had attempted to adopt her, every member of her family had given up their rights to the little girl. This is important because in that culture, they have a dowry system, which means if you are to marry someone or be in a relationship with someone that produces a child, you have to pay a dowry for that person to be married to you and for you to have children with them. And because we had attempted to adopt her, now that wasn't a problem for him. Now everyone else on paper has given up their rights to the little girl. And so he could step right in and be the father that God called him to be from the beginning. Heartbreaking for us. But thank you, Jesus, for what you did in this story. Thank you, Jesus, that you reunited this little girl with her earthly father, with her heavenly father, that you restored him. Now he's a pastor leading people to Christ in bush churches across northern Uganda, teaching people about Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he also teaches them how to start farms. <laughs> God's moving. Amen. That's awesome. None of that would have happened if we would have just decided to give up. If we hadn't have seen it through, if we hadn't have continued to walk through that path that we were on. James chapter 1 verse 2 says this. James 1 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. What this means is that us choosing to trust God and our faith is meant to move us through something. There's going to be a time where you're going to have to tuck in behind King Jesus as he is leading the way. And you might be taking arrows, and you might be enduring pain and suffering, but as long as you tuck in and you stay behind the king, you're going to move through it. And moving through it is going to produce strength in you that will not only prepare you for your next trial, but it will reach out and minister to other people who are just about to go down the path that you just walked down. There are other people who are going to benefit from your faith and your trust. But that doesn't happen if we don't first choose to trust Jesus. Your discipleship journey ends there. You don't grow in a relationship if you never choose to trust first. I want to invite our worship team to come out as they're getting strapped up with their guitars and microphones and battery packs. And I want to share a quote with you guys. And this is a quote from Oswald Chambers. And this is kind of part of my my rhythm of of devotion. And it's a book called My Upmost for His Highest. And years ago, a pastor told me about it. He was mentoring me. And it's made a huge impact on my life. But this is a quote from Oswald Chambers. How are we going to get a life that has no lust, no self-interest, and is not sensitive to the ridicule of others? How will we have the type of love that is kind, is not provoked, and thinks no evil? The only way is by allowing nothing of the old life to remain, and by having only simple, perfect trust in God. Such a trust that we no longer want God's blessings, but we only want God himself. Have we come to the point where God can withdraw his blessings from us without our trust in him being affected? Once we truly see God at work, we will never be concerned again about the things that happen because we are actually trusting in our Father in heaven, whom the world cannot see. I'm going to ask you guys a question that I have to ask myself regularly. Are there some areas in your life where you don't trust God? Maybe it's in the area of your finances. Maybe God is nudging you to do something and you just haven't been able to do it. You're thinking about it still, but you haven't stepped out in faith in that area yet. 
Maybe it's their broken relationship. And you've decided, I can handle this. I can fix this. I can do it. You've already jumped into plan A, B, C, and D. But you haven't even stopped to ask and pray and talk to God about it first. Maybe it's an area of deep pain that you've kept hidden and in your eyes safe all your life. And you haven't yet trust, opened, your, opened your hand and trusted God to heal that area, to heal you in that thing that happened to you many years ago. How can you activate your faith by trusting in God? How can you say, even today, God, it doesn't make sense, and I don't see the end yet, but today I choose to trust you. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come up front. And today, if there's an area in your life that you know you need to submit and surrender to Christ in the area of trust, I want to ask you to come down and pray with our prayer team as our worship team continues to lead us. Are there areas of your faith that have been dead because they've not been activated by trusting God through action? Today, even if you know, like, I don't know how it's going to happen, but today I want to commit to God that I want to surrender and submit to Him and choose to trust Him because I believe that He's good, because I believe that He's trustworthy, because I believe that not only can He get me through it, but he has a plan that I may not understand on this side of eternity, but I'm going to choose to trust him. God, we just thank you and we praise you for your unfailing love, your rich and beautiful mercy, and for your grace poured out and lavished on us that we could be called your children, your sons, and your daughters. God, teach us what it means to prefer each other in love. Teach us what it means to follow hard after you, withholding nothing, fully surrendered, fully submitted, fully into your will and your way. Quicken our hearts to continue to trust in you and not lean on our own understanding, to not lean on our own vision, God, but to trust you with our whole heart. God, we give you the glory and we give you the praise. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for those who are seated here today. God, I pray healing over them, over their bodies, over their minds, over their emotions, over their relationships right now in Jesus' name. God, I pray that you would bless the work of their hands, God, as they leave from this place and they take your kingdom with them into their homes, into their workplaces, God. I pray that you would would, would abound in love and blessing over them, God. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. God bless you guys. We love you. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.